Hello and welcome to the Colts Cover 2 podcast. I am Joel A. Erickson. I am joined as always by Nate Atkins. Uh, I would say that we're in uh, early second quarter of Coach Col- the Colts head coaching search right now. If uh, if I was handicapping it, they, they've been through the, fir- the first round of interviews with guys who uh, with people who weren't coaching in last week's uh, playoff games. We know there's at least four coming up this weekend. Uh, Dan Graziano from ESPN reported that Jeff Saturday's interview will be this week as well. Um, Graziano also reported that, that Saturday had some family stuff he had to do last week. Uh, a little weird to me. I don't have any background on why this has happened other than what Graziano reported about Um family obligations that, that Saturday had to be at. And who knows what those family obligations were? I mean, if, you know, there, there's some stuff that's serious enough that I think you can put off a coaching interview. Um, but but just a little weird that it took, it's taken him this long, um, you know, to, to interview. We don't know exactly when. Like I said, Graziano said this week. Uh, the other four that are new are Dan Quinn, D'Amico Ryans, uh, Mike Kafka and Wink Martindale. It's it's as eclectic and as different a group as as it's been the whole time. Like the the wide ranging part of this search, I think you'd be hard pressed to uh, to say Chris Ballard was lying about that. But I want to start with Jeff Saturday here, and I, I know Colts fans are probably kind of sick of discussing his candidacy and what's what's going on with him. But I, I really want to start with a tweet put out by Dan Orlovsky, former Colts. And Lions backup quarterback Dan Orlovsky, now uh, obviously very familiar, uh, famous uh, ESPN announcer, analyst. Um, yesterday, well, I guess Wednesday, because today is, we're taping this on Thursday. You could be listening to this at any point in the future. So I got to remember that uh, you guys can obviously listen to this whenever. But, uh, he put out a tweet, tons of good candidates in the Colts. Uh, he's talking about the Colts coaching search, but I know some facts from when Ursay took over as head coach. Rushing yards per game, 30th to 12th. Rush yards per attempt, 30th to 10th. Pass protection, 29th to 11th. Plus five points per game. Led three games at half. Led five games after the first quarter. Not saying it's a no-brainer, but did some good, good stuff in a tough spot. Okay. Uh, I have thoughts for Dan Orlovsky. Um, number one... Uh, I'm gonna set I'm gonna set you up on this because it's the easiest one. Um, that last bullet point led three games at the half, led five games after the first quarter. What what is that, Nate? What what <laughs> what's he trying um, to say? That comes off like that brings me back to when I was in college and you're trying to like write an essay and you're trying to get to like a word count and you just don't know what else to say. So you're looking <laughs> for like what else can we throw in? <laughs> And so you start looking there. On, the no, we don't want to talk about the second half. Not not fourth quarter. No, we can't talk about that. Uh, so then you get to oh, look. They were loud after the first quarter. They were up three nothing against the Giants after the first quarter. Um, then they lost uh, twenty eight to ten. So, um, so yeah, I just thirty eight to ten. Sorry, they all run together, don't they? Mm-hmm. Um, so pretty much like the guy coached eight games, and you're saying he led at halftime in three of them. Okay, if those were wins, his record would be three and five, which is still not exactly a winning argument. So it's still the whole thing came off to me. Frank Reich with at that point. Yeah. Look, Dan, I, I think Dan can be really good when he uh, 
you know, he's breaking down quarterbacks. I, I've always loved his inside. Going back to my first year in Detroit, he was the backup quarterback there, and you could kind of run anything by him. And the thing is, he's in, you know, he's he's got a lot of energy and passion. When he's on subjects that that I think he's actually passionate about and studying and unbiased on, you know, looking at a new quarterback coming out of the draft, he's excellent. It's not hard to read though what's kind of going on here, uh, where Dan played for the Colts twice. He was a starting quarterback for Jeff Saturday in 2011 when they had to fill in for uh, Peyton Manning and made it clear he'd like to get into coaching. Jeff Saturday is putting a coaching staff together. Those two were employees as recently as two months ago, co uh, co-workers together at ESPN. Um, look, it's just very obvious what it is. Dan Orlovsky got in some trouble with uh, Justin Fields at one point, sharing what people in the league were saying knowing that he would share it on a big platform. Things like Justin Fields, you know, was had character concerns and work ethic concerns, which we've since learned is about as far from Justin Fields as anything you could say. But maybe it worked because it got Justin Fields to fall to number 10. So it's just a platform to sort of share a uh, an argument that, that favors somebody here. So that's what it is, because I just I think Dan's smarter than to think that uh, leading three games at the half for a coach who went one and seven. And in those three games, by the way, it was one and two. So, I mean, like, we are really taking this to a very, like, participation-ribbon level to say, well, we led in in those three games where we went one and two. Well, what happened in those games? Well, one of them involved the greatest collapse in the history of football. But other than that, you know, it was pretty good. It just, it kind of illustrated to me how little of a case there is. In fact, all those stats he laid out, actually, you could say, they make Jeff Saturday look like a great candidate to be an offensive line coach. I think there was an argument there about him coming in and working a lot with that group and instilling some confidence in Bernard Ryman. And but that's not that's not the conversation he was he was taking that in. That's not what Jeff's up for right now. He's up for head coach of a football team, and uh, and I think those those stats just kind of illustrated how difficult of a battle it is for him to make a case based off those eight games. Um. I have I have issues with the rushing stats he tweeted too. It, you, I I've been banging this drum. I feel it feels like since the Raiders game because every because the Raiders game I felt like it just didn't get banged enough. So I'm gonna start hitting it again. Matchup matters, people. Orlowski yeah. should know that better than anybody as somebody who's a a quote unquote NFL guru like film guy. Like matchups matter. Like the team you're playing matters. Seven of the eight teams that the Colts faced in Jeff Saturday's tenure were in the bottom half of the league in rush defense. Seven of the eight. Yeah. Of course they look good against the Texans. That was the worst rush defense in football. Of course they look good against the Chargers and the, Gi and the Giants. Bad rush defenses. I, like, there's a very easy explanation for that. The other thing, the pass protection thing, I, this is, I, I can't take credit for this. I have to bring I'm sure Kevin said it on his on Kevin and Query, the radio show, but Kevin said, you know, obviously Bernard Ryman got better. Um, you know, and that's that's something that Saturday can kind of hang his hat on. He helped Bernard Ryman get better. But Kevin pointed out that there's a way to look at that too, where you could look at his improvement as just what you naturally would expect from a rookie starting in the NFL at left tackle for the first time who was raw coming out. 
I mean, that was the book on Ryman in a training camp was that he was raw and that they could see that all the physical tools were there, but he just couldn't be, he wasn't consistent enough and it was going to take time. Well, he got time and he got better. So I don't want to take it all away from Saturday. I'm just saying that it's not as cut and dry as Orlovsky made it seem in that tweet. Uh, there's no, there's other factors that have to be taken into into account there. Like the rush defense thing, that might be my biggest annoyance from uh from from last season was uh it was that like we when whenever we're talking about these games and people are talking about these games, it's like the matchup doesn't matter. It absolutely does. Well, to your point Jeff Saturday came in week 10 against the Raiders. And this is why we use, I like to use DVOA so much because it measures how you perform against how the rest of the league performs on that same team. So that first game was solid against the Raiders. They were 10% better than the league average. That's the only game where they were better than the league average in all of Jeff Saturday's games. Every other one was negative. And uh, the Texans was only... It was almost they almost broke even against the Texans, but almost the rest of these, they were at least 17 percent worse than every other than the average rushing team against those teams. Some of them are historically bad. I mean, some of these are like like they were 40 percent worse running the ball in the Giants than the average team that faces the Giants. The Giants have a truly terrible rush defense at, or at the linebacker level. And so some the numbers are just. You know, and you compare those to early in the year where, of course, we know they were never like this is a low bar. He was coming in here to try and fix. Colts had a couple of really bad games early in the year in DVOA, but they had, you know, their best rushing performance of the season was week seven against the Titans. So that was better than any of the games Jeff Saturday was here for. So, look, he did some good things with that offensive line. I think it's also context is very important. The, the plan they came into the year with went so poorly at the start on the offensive line. They were just trying anything to give themselves a chance and to keep their quarterbacks upright and to keep Frank Reich from losing his job and to keep a Sam Ellinger from getting killed. There was more of an emphasis when Jeff got there to build this way, the way you should naturally build an offensive line. But it wasn't a coach who's concerned about surviving, you know, the guys in the backfield and keeping his job. So there was more of a patience to be done with Bernard Ryman when when Jeff Saturday came in that they couldn't afford early in the season, throwing this kid out there who's spent two years as an offensive tackle uh, since he switched to tight end and grew up in Austria and all of that. So, yeah, it's just it's context matters. And if, if he wants to build the argument around the offensive line, that's fine. I mean, I can get I can like I said, I can look at enough numbers in context to say I think he showed he can coach an offensive line. I don't think that's what he's interviewing for here, though. And being able to coach an offensive line rarely has translated in the history of football to being a great head coach or at least a great offensive coordinator. I'm trying to think of what former offensive linemen are good head coaches in the NFL. And it's very hard to even pin that down. I know Andy Reid has done some work on the offensive line, but he's much bigger than that. Obviously, he's he's more of a passing game specialist with a quarterback's coach. Andy Reid's history as an assistant, too, is also like just from because he was he was with Green Bay when Brett Favre was there. And so I was talking I can't remember who I was talking about this with, but it's interesting that you bring this up, because if you look at his. 
history before he was a head coach. He was an assistant offensive line coach and tight ends coach in Green Bay for five seasons. That was his that was his uh that was his title. And then he was a quarterback's coach and assistant head coach for two years before he got hired by the Eagles. But if you ever listen to Brett Favre do interviews, Andy Reid was essentially responsible for uh teaching Brett Favre like how to understand football, which yeah. if you know anything about Brett Favre is not, not necessarily an easy task. Like I remember watching a, one interview with Favre where uh, he basically said that Andy Reid taught him how to watch film. And this is before I think he was the quarterback's coach. He, he was teaching him that there's, there's basically something on every play uh, that declares what the defense is going to do which I know sounds simple in today's day and age, but in the 90s, especially if you've ever heard what, of how Brett Favre figured out what a nickel defense was, um, this is not like a small thing for him. So a- Andy Reid's title in Green Bay didn't seem to fit that. I think one of the other things about the offensive line coach thing, I think Jeff Saturday can teach technique. I have questions about can he handle the X's and O's of, you know, beyond technique like can he handle the adjustments that an offensive line has to make against a defense can he marry it with the 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 scheme um or or is he or is he is he going to just kind of you know like the 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 whole thing that the ursa came up with like man blocking versus zone blocking there's there's schematic reasons that teams do that stuff that marries with the passing game like why they are the way they are in, in offenses. And so whoever his coordinator is going to be like, I, I just have questions about, is it, is it all technical with him or can he do like, for instance, the San Francisco 49ers offensive line coach is also their run game coordinator. Like he has yeah. definitive, he has definitive schematic responsibilities that Jeff Saturday sort of said in his ending press conference, he didn't want. Um, so I do have some questions about that. I think obviously he knows how to t- teach technique clearly. He absolutely does. He's he's been around. I mean, he's he was a Pro Bowler like six or seven times. Um, but some of that coordinator stuff is like him saying he's not an offensive coordinator. Like some of that stuff is what offensive line coaches do. I don't know that Chris Strasser necessarily had that role on this on this staff, but it can be. And and this staff doesn't matter anymore. The next staff is what matters. And I think sometimes the offensive line coach does have some design responsibilities especially in a run game well yeah you look at the way that uh by the way he just got fired greg roman in baltimore but the way they run the ball is an entirely different identity and schematic approach i mean there's been a lot of shifts you know just in that way since the days jeff played with the the explosion of the uh the wide zone run scheme a lot of the stuff that mike shanahan and gary kubiak brought in that have now kind of become a wave in the nfl whether it's sean McVay or uh, Kyle Shanahan, Matt LaFleur, Kevin Stefanski, all those kind of coaches, Arthur Smith, have built their entire offensive identity based on that approach of O-line play that is different than the simple, um, the, the little bit more simple approach of zone block versus man block. And Jeff knows way more about this stuff than either of, either of us do, but it is worth saying that, like, this is why you spend time coaching is to develop these, uh, some of these ideas and to modernize your approaches and learn from other people. It's not going to be the same as playing the way that the Indianapolis Colts played back in the late 2000s when they had five Hall of Famers in an offense. And 
their scheme was based around Peyton Manning and the fact that you have that kind of passing talent, Marvin Harrison and Reggie Wayne, that's very different than if you're going to build an entire team through the offensive line and say, this is the way we're going to win. And I just went through the, uh, the teams here, unless I'm missing something, I think Andy Reid may be the only head coach who was formerly an offensive line coach in the NFL. Uh, so well, there's so there's another reason for that. There's another reason for that that I think we can talk about a little bit. Offensive line coaches, I got to come up with the right word here, so I'm not swearing on a podcast. Um, I got it. Offensive line coaches frequently are the fire and brimstone types. Um, that's kind of you know being a that's that's kind of an archetype for that position, and. You can't necessarily be all fire and brimstone as a head coach. It, it You can, and it's good to have that, but you can't necessarily do that with everybody all the time um, because it starts to just sound like noise. And so I think that, that that might be part of it too, is that just that's kind of the archetype of, like usually when you're on an offensive practice field, the, the two loudest coaches are like are the two line coaches, the offensive line coach mm-hmm. and the defensive line coaches. They're, they're the ones who are screaming murder at everyone. Um, and you have to be able to alter your approach some, you know? Yeah, and I think, you know, that goes back to the fact that, like, when you talk about effort and sort of, you know, motivation and togetherness, there's not a lot of places in the on an NFL team where that applies. It's more about, you know, talent and scheme and all that. Run blocking is an area where that has had some payoff. So that's where that, like, that fire and brimstone approach does have – in effect within an offensive line group uh, that's not the same as the way you would coach a quarterback or a wide receiver or, you know, or a kicker or anything like that. Also, offensive line coaches, it's just such a, I cannot possibly emphasize this enough, how much of a foxhole an offensive line is. They are very, it's a very technical group. They are very different than, uh, than the other players in the locker room. They, they don't tend to hang out as much with other players in the locker room. It is just so very detailed. Like it's the most detail-oriented position. Very different than coaching a cornerback uh, or a wide receiver. I mean, quarterback is detailed too. But the difference is that offensive line coaches they very much work on working, developing their guys to set a foundation for everyone else to play around. That's different than stepping out from those details, being a master of those details, and all of a sudden being a CEO of an entire team. I think Jeff's got some skills that make him better than others. Like he is a very charismatic guy. Um, he, you know, he does carry himself better. I think he's got some of those good extroverted uh, motivator type traits that are bigger than just details of an offensive line. But it's still a jump to try and do that. And, the, and that's the problem with like, you look at how you would coach an offensive line where there's an element of fire and brimstone of developing that, that grit, toughness, intensity, demeanor in the run game. But then the pass game is very much more of a reactionary sort of approach is like there's obviously details and all of that is very very important, but you are catching what other uh, units are doing to you, how pass rushers are coming at you. That's different than dictating your plan the way you would in building out a passing game. That's why you very rarely see offensive line coaches who are offensive coordinators because they only see that one area of it. Whereas what tends to happen more these days is someone who comes from the passing game element, usually a quarterback's coach, is the offensive play caller and play designer trusting an offensive line coach to build you know the the blocking scheme but that only ends up being you know 20 35 percent of what you do anyway is the run game so 
just a lot of the areas where I think is is why you don't see a lot of offensive line coaches who are head coaches. It can be done, but right now it's not being done. The only one is Andy Reid, and the diff- again, like we said, the big difference with Andy Reid is he became so much different than an offensive line coach. He became really a passing game specialist, and that's probably just benefited him that he has that extra layer to him where he also has an understanding for that group. But that's just one unit on a much bigger team, and this is a passing league, and I think everything we saw from Jeff Saturday, you want to look at how he ran an offense, what their approach was, what they tried to do, what worked and what didn't work. It all looked like a guy who did a solid job with an offensive line, but it didn't translate to a quarterback, running back, wide receiver, tight end, overall offensive philosophy, aggressiveness within a game, the ability to play complimentary football, the ability to build up a defense. All that kind of fell off. That's why they went one and seven, even with some improvement on the offensive line. Um, what about the other candidates? Does anybody stick out? Like, does anybody jump out? There's a couple of different guys that I, I you know, I, I kind of like some of the stuff I've read. And uh, and but is, is there anybody that jumps out to you? There, there's a lot of other candidates. Obviously, the reason we're talking about Saturday is that everyone knows that he's got a leg up with the owner. And so everyone's kind of just assuming that that Saturday's got a, a, a he's got a giant head start in this race. But the, the rest of the candidates, Chris Ballard, to me, it seems like Chris Ballard is trying very hard to run a real search. Um, I, I can't imagine that you would interview 12 guys uh, if you didn't want to run a real search. Now, what happens when it gets to Ursay's desk? Who knows? Um, but but who sticks out for you from the other candidates? Look, I have always been intrigued by and in, in, there's been some momentum building for him with this opening specifically is Raheem Morris uh, because when you look at coaches and you're trying like what I've tend to find we're talking about head coaches and the challenge going from an offensive line coach to that is that there are just so many more jobs to do and I always think that what helps set you up for that role best is when you've worked under different methods when you've worked under different bosses you've worked under different position groups you can understand what you know, wide receivers coach is trying to trying to accomplish versus a defensive line coach versus a special teams coordinator. And I also think learning lessons along the way is important. He's just got such a fascinating uh, background because he's been a head coach before uh, with the Buccaneers. Didn't go super well, but he was 32 when he got that job. Uh, quarterback was Josh Freeman. That's one of those situations I think people on the outside might look at a record like 1731 and think, no thanks. To me, I look at that and think, that's probably a guy that learned some key lessons of what not to do back then, of how to evolve, how to be more ready this time. And in the span since since he did that, he's gone and he's been a defense coordinator. He's been uh, a wide receivers coach. He's been an interim head coach. He's been an associate head coach. He's won a Super Bowl. And he's a guy that's had to tap into players on both sides of the ball. He's had to work with stars, which has kind of been his big selling point is what he's done for the careers of Aaron Donald and Jalen Ramsey, how those guys have taken – his back even when it didn't always work and and kind of built up younger players within that that's ultimately what i think a leader's got to do in the nfl and i just think that raheem morris is one of those guys that they're in a difficult spot right now of whoever they hire has to build a really good staff uh it's much bigger than the head coach because you're going to be moving forward with a rookie quarterback you've got to fix a lot of areas in this team this isn't take over a good team and just kind of keep it going it's reinstill things and change elements like the demeanor of the offensive line. And so 
right now there are 10 openings for offense coordinator across the NFL. So it's going to be hard to go after offense coordinators, quarterbacks, coach, offense, line coach, all that stuff. It's going to be very competitive. Raheem Morris is one guy that I think would have a good chance of doing that because he's coached in the league since 2002, won two Super Bowls, worked on both sides of the ball, knows a lot of coaches. And one little leg up for him here that could end up playing out if he were to get the job is that he has a good relationship with Gus Bradley, Richard Smith, coaches like that on this this staff because he's worked with them before. Um, he's been their boss before, too. So I think that uh, and he comes from kind of Dan Quinn, worked with Dan Quinn for a while, which is kind of where the whole uh, a lot of this coaching staff originated from. So I think there's a lot in his favor as far as if you're if your big goal here is build the best overall staff and not overrate just one position like head coach. I think Morris has a good case. Morris is interesting to me, too. Uh, you already touched on this, but just there's so few coaches who have experience on both sides of the ball. Um, yep. Uh, and I think that that's interesting. I, I've typed, I've done a lot of work on some of these. Um, and there's some other guys like I was just D'Amico Ryan's just how fast it's happened with him is interesting. Um, how fast it's happened with him is interesting. How, like he was a player in 2015. Yeah. Um, and obviously moved up really fast that Shanahan, that Shanahan coaching group has produced uh, Robert Sala and uh, um, and Mike McDaniel the last couple of years, two coaches who, I mean, they haven't had a ton of success yet, but I think most people think it's not necessarily because of the coaches. Um, and, uh, and, and there's, there, you know, there's, there's some other guys in there like that, that that'll be interesting to see what what happens with them. You know, some of those early guys, uh, Shane Steichen, obviously with Philadelphia, what they've done with a, a mobile quarterback, and I think more so than just the mobility of the quarterback. I think the thing that interests me there, and the thing that's going to interest me for any coordinator is how do you make a quarter? How do you make make it easy for a quarterback to look good while he's developing? Which is, I think, what we're seeing with Hurts. Uh, Jalen Hurts has played really well this year. He's done a lot of good things. I think that there's probably more they want to get to later on in his career. Um, but he's playing really well while he's on the way to do that. And I think that somebody who can do that, who can bring a quarterback, I was kind of why I was interested in Ben Johnson, too, just because Jared Goff um, is somebody who the Rams moved off of. And obviously that's Sean McVay. And Ben Johnson got a really good season out of him to the point that the Lions are essentially – I mean, you're you have better Michigan ties than I do, but it seemed like the the message out of Michigan was we're going to stick with Jared Goff, um, which no one thought would happen two years ago. Um, yeah. So Ben Johnson was interesting before he went back, but but somebody who can develop a quarterback. And the thing with these defensive coaches is I don't know who their offensive coordinator would be, but somebody who can can make life easy on a young quarterback and allow him to be successful while developing him in into the whole. Uh, package is is really interesting to me. Um, just just because I think it's it's probably the best way to be successful with a young quarterback, which we we keep assuming they're going to get. Yeah, if you look for a prototype of what fits this team at this time, you would think you know an offensive coach who has had success building an offense around a young quarterback, developing that player, 
uh, in in hitting a ceiling. And I think Shane Steichen right now, uh, either him or Mike Kafka would have kind of the best cases for that. Um, Shane Steichen's been a little bit more hands-on, uh, I think, with with Jalen Hurts, um, just because Brian Dable is such a such a factor in the quarterback position for uh, for the Giants, but. Um, and he has a little bit longer of a track record. Shane Steichen's been office coordinator since 2019 with um, with the Chargers. But uh, they're both really interesting. The thing, though, is like I think the Colts are in a difficult spot where they want they need that for sure. They're going to draft quarterback. Got to make him work. Got to make the franchise focused on that position. But like what I mentioned with Raheem Morris, the other key, too, is building an entire staff, winning these competitive staff battles. And also, I think just bringing a level of leadership and calmness to a franchise that's kind of chaotic right now. And that means being able to deal with an owner in Jim Irsay who sometimes reacts emotionally and sometimes has ideas that are out of the box and and meets with the coach after every game and, and kind of presses that onto him. And I think it's be a challenge for a guy like Mike Kafka, for example, who certainly has a lot of talent. I thought about this with Ben Johnson too, like love, Love the start of their career and, and where they're starting to go. But I could see a young coach being a little bit eaten up by this situation, not only in dealing with um, kind of kind of finding alignment within the franchise with the GM and the owner, but building a staff and convincing those guys to come work for you and work for here and work for Jim Mercy and work for the uh, team that just went out and hired, you know, a TV analyst instead of the coaches on its staff, which rankled some in the coaching community. That's going to be a big challenge. So, I, you know, as a, as a play designer, I love the idea of Kafka or Shane Steichen. My concern would be what kind of staffs are those guys able to build in a league where nine other teams are looking for an offensive coordinator and the Colts are trying to fight this perception of kind of what they've done within the mobile ranks of their assistant coaching staff. Can those guys build the right staff? If they can't build the right staff, I think the problem is a lot of their skills as play designers could fall away. We've seen talented play designers get to that head coaching role, and they just can't run the entire team that way. You take them out of that very specific box, and it doesn't work the same way where there's big challenges with a rookie quarterback. So I like the idea of those guys. I would really, really be ask a lot of questions about what their staff's going to look like. And again, you got to take them at their word because they can want guys, but there's nine other teams hiring offense coordinators. It's going to be going to be a challenge. Um. A piece of news is breaking right now. I apologize if we're um, if we're if uh, we're a little bit spotty there because the the hard part with with taping podcasts like during right now or during free agency is that there's stuff going on no matter what time we do it. There's just no time to do it. I guess we could try to do it at three in the morning, but I have a, I have a three month old, so that's not. <laughs> and, but this is something that's been bandied about and I think it's important. I think, I think we can address it here. It's a good thing to get to on the podcast. The Ravens right now, as we're taping this are having a press conference with Eric DaCosta and Jim Harbaugh. And essentially what they're saying is we're going to do whatever we have to, to keep Lamar. Uh, we want him to have input on choosing the next offensive coordinator. They let go of Greg Roman. Um, I, Greg Roman's agency is saying that's a parting. It's is saying like he wanted to pursue other interests. I, I don't cover the Ravens. I can't say, but it, that that feels like something you say when the team wanted to move on. Yeah. Um, but there's been some talk about Lamar Jackson. There's been some talk about like trade for Lamar Jackson. I, I'll tell you why. I'll start by telling you why I've 
never taken it super seriously. And then I'm going to let you offer your opinion on if Lamar Jackson was theoretically available. Is that the move? So the reason I, ha I haven't even let my brain go there, and it's because usually what happens in this situation with a 26-year-old quarterback at the end of his rookie deal who's been very good and is the sort of is the identity of a team is that there's been a lot of posturing and they haven't gotten together on a deal and he wants guaranteed money. And I understand all of that stuff, all of the relationship stuff. I get, I get all of it. And I also know, uh, I want to make it clear that I, I know that like there have been Russell Wilson forced his way out. You know, there, there've been some moves. This has been a bigger deal the last couple of seasons off seasons with quarterback movement than it has been in the past. But, The Ravens now know exactly what their team looks like without Lamar Jackson. And what it looks like, a uh, pretty impressive playoff game outside of the Sam Hubbard play, notwithstanding, is an offense that scored like 12 points a game or something down the stretch without it. And I just kept thinking, I just keep thinking that what's going to happen is what usually happens, what happened with the Packers, where it's all well and good to talk in theory about moving on from a quarterback, but ultimately when you start contemplating what it actually means to move on from a quarterback and the fact that you don't have another guy there, inevitably you're going to come to the decision that that just paying the guy what he wants and keeping continuity and keeping the good quarterback is better than launching into this void the Colts have been. So for me, I needed something. I, I still need something where – Lamar Jackson tweets, I'm not ever going to play for the Ravens again. I won't do it. I'm forcing a trade for me to even consider it. So that's that's where I've been at. I think I think that's not the fun. That's not the fun way to look at it if you're a fan. So I'm going to let you do the fun part and talk about would you make the deal? Like if it's if it's the fourth pick, it's probably going to take the fourth pick, right? Maybe another first rounder. Uh, yeah. to get Jackson plus 230 million guaranteed. Uh, would you do it? Yeah, it's not my money I'm spending. So this is under <laughs> the this is under the idea that Jim Irsay is willing to do it and, and pay Lamar what the Ravens haven't paid him yet. Uh, Nate has other things. Nate has other things to do with the, he'd like to do with the 230 million he has laying around. Yeah, that's right. I just found some more of the couch cushions. Uh, clean in today. Um, that's the thing. It's like a $45 million signing bonus. So that's really the hurdle that I think is the reason we're at this spot is that the Ravens they haven't been willing or able to offer that. And Lamar Jackson's looking at the league and what Deshaun Watson got and said, oh, well, I'll wait till I find a team that will do that. That's why I do think the door is open because at some point they're either going to have to pay him or someone else is going to. And if they don't have the money, someone else is going to. There's just going to be a resolution. He's someone's going to have to give in. He hasn't give, given in yet. So if I'm the Colts, though, if he's if they have the money to do it, yeah, I would do that deal easily. Lamar Jackson's 26 years old. He's a former MVP. Uh, he is in the mold of what they have not had for uh, for very many years as they tried this carousel, which is a probably a mobile quarterback. This is an electric quarterback. Um, he's a type that you can't really build a game plan for. Uh, you know, he's got his run for 1,200 yards one year, 1,000 yards another year. Still pretty accurate quarterback, too. 
um, you know, accurate enough, 64% in his career. The main thing, though, is the concern with Lamar, I think, that a lot of people have right now is the durability. And it was a concern when he came into the league, this smaller guy that runs a lot. And it has caught up to him a little bit. He's missed 10 games over the past two years. And no question that has to be a concern. And I could see where the Colts, after what they've gone through at that position, especially with Andrew Luck, and the amount of money that you would end up having to offer a player would have some pause with that. I still think there's a world where Lamar Jackson can thrive uh, a lot of what he's doing, but in a safer way, which is if you look at the Ravens in his career, he has only attempted 400 passes one time, which is unbelievable. That's wild. Yeah, that was his second that. year when he won MVP, 401 attempts. That's a career high. That is so low. And there's two reasons why it's that low. Number one is that obviously he, you know, he's an electric runner, so you're going to use that. Uh, but they also have not had a bell cow running back with him. They drafted J.K. Dobbins to be that. It hasn't worked out with injuries. They haven't trusted him lately. They just have not found a bell cow running back to play with Lamar Jackson to take those carries away. They do this read option, which has worked really well at times, Gus Edwards and J.K. Dobbins and guys like that. But they don't have a back that teams are scared enough of to force Lamar to hand the ball off. So they, uh, or I should say, to force Lamar, or uh, they, they don't have a back that's killing teams when he's taking the ball like that. So Lamar's pulling the ball more, and he's uh, I think there's ways to take carries off him in the run game with Jonathan Taylor. I think that's actually exactly what he needs is a kind of a high volume bell cow running back that would create just incredible backfield. But also, what the whole reason that I think they're ultimately splitting with Greg Roman is that they hit such a ceiling in the passing game where they designed this incredibly complex run game, best run game in football. But they've really done nothing at the passing game level. They've kind of chased off wide receivers like Marquise Brown. Uh, just they've not been able to retract any in free agency. The Colts, I think, have some good players already on their roster who also fit Lamar's style, which is Michael Pittman Jr., Alec Pierce. He's big bodied, uh, out of structured type of players. Whereas Lamar has not worked. The, hard, the, the challenge they've had in drafting that position, also recruiting free agents, is getting those precision receivers that can work at like three-step drops, timing, pretty much everything that the Colts were starting to build with Matt Ryan would not apply here. But the, the receivers the Colts currently have in Pierce and Pittman, I think, fit really well with the style of, of play you would use it with Lamar Jackson. So it would absolutely take, like all of these, any quarterback we talk about, takes the right coach, the right scheme. But you can see a world where there's like Lamar Jackson with, say, like Shane Steichen and taking a lot of the things that he did for Jalen Hurts, uh, you know, and finding a way to utilize the rushing and the insane athletic ability of a quarterback, but not only in terms of running the ball and taking hits, using those to set up play actions, set up throws outside of structure to receivers who can deliver in that way and building a diverse run game that gives carries to a number of different players, but a lot of them to Jonathan Taylor. So I would be all in on this move, but again, it's not my money. And I, I'm not sure if the Colts can answer that problem. I don't know if they have the upfront cash that Lamar is looking for. I don't know that they'd be his preferred destination, uh, but if they were, I'd go ahead and do it. Um, from what I saw on Twitter while we were taping this, um, They've, like I said, the 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 key there is 
The GM said the team's singular focus is on a long-term extension with Jackson, would not discuss trading Jackson. Uh, Harbaugh said that Lamar will have input on the OC decision. Um, he said he already talked to Lamar about it. And Harbaugh said it's going to get done. I, the Ravens are trying really, really hard today to say Lamar Jackson's our guy going forward. So we'll see. I, like I said, a lot of times what happens, I feel like a lot of times what happens in these contract standoff type things is eventually the team gets to a point where they realize, wait, 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 wait. If we see this out, we actually have to play without him. And <laughs> we have to have somebody else here. And that's a pretty powerful motivator because the Ravens, the Ravens saw down the stretch what their offense looks like without Lamar Jackson. And it's not good. And they don't have a pick to get one. So like what I, what would be their option? Derek Carr? Like you're going to bring Derek Carr in and just completely go away from the identity you had? Like I, it, it doesn't seem realistic either. So I think realistically, as fun as it is to think about Lamar Jackson in Indianapolis, I think it's probably more likely that it, it'd be a draft pick. Yeah, well, I will point out that a lot of these things we're hearing out of the Ravens are exactly what the Seahawks said at this time last year about Russell Wilson where he's the quarterback, we're working through it, we've talked to Russ, it's not even a consideration to trade him. And then a week after they said some of those comments at the Combine, they pulled off a huge trade with the Broncos. Part of that, people think, was them driving up the price, meaning, well, we can say we're happy to keep him unless you blow our doors off. Obviously, what's different with Russ is he's an older quarterback, and based on the way he played this year, maybe it was them getting out early on that and just sort of faking that through it. But Really, until that dotted line signed, I mean, nothing is for sure here. And I just think that they, they've risked a lot with this, uh, pushing it this far, because Lamar Jackson can get hurt. He can decide he's he's out. Like, they, they've let this linger a lot. It does sound like they're getting serious on it. But I still think there's a possibility he gets traded because something's, something's fell off there for a while. And it fell off with Russ in Seattle. And until I see a deal, I still, I still have questions about it because I think Lamar – Again, a lot of things changed in this entire quarterback market with the Deshaun Watson deal. The fact that it was fully guaranteed, $230 million upfront signing bonus of $45 or so million. An owner's going to have to pony up to that. So I assume if they're saying this as a franchise, they're willing to do it now. But until they do, I think it's still out there. As usual on this podcast, going back to before Nate was here, I am the wet blanket and Nate is here to fuel your rumors. <laughs> Just <laughs> a ray of sunshine on all of your dreams. Um, I, I'm 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 the way the weather is outside in Indianapolis right now, which is pouring. And Nate's like, no, 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 there's a rainbow. There's a rainbow. If you want Lamar, it could still happen. Um, and it could. It absolutely could. Uh, there's there's some stuff going on. Well, uh, honestly, the, the hard part about this podcast is that they're kind of like we said, they're in the first quarter. We're not even at halftime, and halftime is where I think things start to really get interesting when the Colts start bringing people in for in-person interviews, which has to happen. That can't, they can't not do that. They have to have yeah. at least one in-person interview with a minority candidate to satisfy the Rooney, Rooney rule. So there will be a, some version of a second round of, of interviews here. Once they're through yeah. the first round, that's, that's I think, halftime. And then the third quarter is the next round of interviews. And then the fourth quarter is Jim Mercer making the decision. Yeah, I think based on the candidate list they've taken so far, the process – 
they've taken, the type of coaches they're going after, the ones in the playoffs and, and all the varied experiences they have. It's been a really good first half. You just got to hope that the Colts have a better half than they had against the Vikings and a better fourth quarter <laughs> than they had against the Cowboys. <laughs> this can turn. We've seen this team turn. Uh, I can't improve on that. That's a perfect ending. Uh, we're going to have a lot of stuff up on the Colts, on the Colts coaching candidates. Uh, keep your dial tuned to Indy Star as the coaching search continues. <laughs> Nate with two fantastic jokes in this pod. He gets the MVP award. Uh, for the Colts Cover 2 Podcast, I'm Joel A. Erickson. This has been Nate Atkins.